Welcome into The Harvest, a podcast dedicated to helping ordinary believers take the message and mission of Jesus into the everyday places of life. On today's show, I'm joined by author and speaker Frank Viola. He's written a book recently titled Insurgents, Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom. We dive into a lot of good stuff in this conversation, and I think you're going to be both challenged and encouraged to seek Jesus and live for Him at a whole new level. I've included links to Frank's new book, as well as his website and his YouTube channel in the show notes to this episode. There's a ton of resources at those sites, so I'd encourage you to check them out. And with that, I bring you my conversation with Frank Viola. Frank Viola is an author, a speaker, and I would say a a thought leader for the church in the 21st century. He's probably best known for Pagan Christianity, a book he co-authored with George Barna back in 2008. But he's a prolific author and also runs frankviola.org, an amazing website that's consistently ranked in the top 10 for Christian blogs. Frank recently published his latest book, Insurgents, Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom. I'm excited to talk with him today. Frank, welcome to the show. Hey, my privilege. I'm happy to be on. Well, like I mentioned, I think a lot of people may be familiar with you from your book, uh, Pagan Christianity, or they may have heard of you in connection with church planting and organic church. Um, Probably fewer people are aware that you've had a real focus over the past several years on helping people in their 20s and 30s develop what you describe as the deeper Christian life. With that background, can you tell us where does Insurgents come in, this this latest book that you've written? It seems to me that it's more than just a book. So what's the origin story? I appreciate the question, Andrew. Yeah, so basically for people who don't know who I am, I've written 33 books to date, uh, all on the Christian uh, landscape. Uh, eight of them have been bestsellers. They've been published with major Christian publishing houses. And the theme that runs through all of my work is the answer to the question, there must be more than this. In other words, many Christians have deep within their beating chest uh, this this inquiry. Uh, when they get exposed to church, when they get exposed to uh, the Christian books that are out there, uh, particularly the popular ones, uh, when they get exposed to Christian podcasts, uh, television, radio, for many, many believers, there is this aching, nagging question that says there's got to be more to the Christian life than this. There has to be more to <laughs> right. the Lord than this. There's got to be more to our understanding of scripture than this. And that was exactly the heart cry of my own, uh, you know, spirit and soul uh, when I was in my early 20s. And it led me into what I call the deeper journey. And I discovered that there is something called the deeper Christian life, which uh, is a coin, a, a term coined by Andrew Murray, one of the, one of the great writers of the 1800s. And when I came into the deeper things of God, it just blew my mind uh, because I saw the Lord like I never had before. There were aspects of him that were so exciting, so powerful, uh, so mind-blowing, and also things in the scripture that I'd never seen before. And so my work is, is written to the Christian that is not satisfied with his or her spiritual life, uh, with churches, we know it, um, and and in their hearts, they know that there's got to be something deeper. There's got to be something higher. There's got to be something beyond. 
when it comes to Jesus Christ. And so that's who I'm writing to. And everything I, I've written comes out of my own personal journey, the things I've discovered, the things that have been helpful to me, uh, the solutions to problems I've had as a believer over the years. And uh, that's one of the reasons why all of the books have really done well. Uh, and, and this new one, you ask, you know, kind of the story behind it. This new one is now being called my signature work. And I believe that that is true, that Insurgents, Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom will, is probably the most important book uh, I will write. Uh, I have never in my life received so many testimonies of life change, of altered uh, hearts, uh, than, than I have from this book. And, I, and I've written many books that have, you know, generated lots of um, wonderful testimonials, uh, as well as a lot of hate mail uh, from people who are not willing to be challenged or they're encased in their traditions. But insurgents, uh, particularly among leaders uh, and pastors and young people, um, the book has absolutely wrecked, and I mean that in a good way, many, many a believer. And that's exactly what the message did to me before I put it in print. So, uh, yeah, so that th this book stands apart in, in the sense that it, it's, it seems to be, Andrew, what God is breathing on right now. You know, every once in a while, they'll, they'll come a book and out of it, they'll, they'll come a podcast and out of it, they'll come a, a I don't want to say movement because I'm not a fan of movements, but there'll be a move of the Lord associated with it. And so I, I titled this Insurgence because there is an insurgence happening. We could talk about that word later on uh, in the body of Christ. And the book seems to be a, a, the symbol of that or sort of the gateway, the gateway drug, so to speak, um, <laughs> to this thing that, that God seems to be up to. You know, I, I really appreciate that. Um, and I, I've definitely experienced that in, in reading your works or listening to some of the, the messages that you, you have at your website. And I really see that that is the case that, that we have these really basic foundational things like, uh, what does it mean to be a disciple? Um, what is the church? And in this case, uh, what really caught my attention with your book is, it's called Insurgents, but then the subtitle is Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom. And that idea of reclaiming something so central as the gospel message itself, and specifically the gospel of the kingdom, mm -hmm. um, really resonates with me. So why did you see that as, as a need, that the gospel, and specifically the gospel of the kingdom, was something that needed to be reclaimed? When I started to look into the kingdom of God in scriptures about 10 years ago, um, I, I, did a, I did a study on it because I wanted to find out what, is, what does the Bible really say about this business of the kingdom of God? We know Jesus talked an awful lot about the kingdom. It was his central message. But what does the rest of the scripture have to say and how does it fit together? And so I began to look at it not topically in the sense of, you know, um, systematically. I looked at it narratively. I looked at it from Genesis to Revelation in, in chronological order. And I noticed things that I would have never noticed if I did it uh, systematically, as most theology is taught systematically these days, not narratively. Mm -hmm. 
And so many things jumped out. Uh, there's a story to be told, and I unveil the story in the book. Uh, and some things are just amazing, uh, you know, that, that I had uncovered. Um, amazing to me and, and to other readers based on feedback. And uh, so consequently, I realized that this thing called the gospel of the kingdom that was on the lips of Jesus and the apostles, uh, Paul, Peter, etc., um, had been lost to us. I realized, I, I, I thought to myself, this gospel is not being preached today. Uh, anytime, anytime little bits and pieces of it get presented, because that is true, there are bits and pieces of the gospel of the kingdom that are presented um, here and there. It's always couched in legalism. It's always brought uh, with a condemning tone. And at the end of the day, readers kind of, you know, hide under the bed with a flashlight because, uh, you know, they're not doing enough. They're falling short. They're, they're just living under a pile of guilt. And so I saw that the gospel of the kingdom, on the one hand, was incredibly challenging, uh, scarily challenging. But on the other hand, incredibly freeing and liberating. And so my goal in presenting the gospel of the kingdom, which I do believe needs to be reclaimed and is being reclaimed right now in the day in which we live, my goal was to do it in such a way where the challenge and the in the bleeding edge uh, was not removed um, on the one hand, but also that it, that the message would not have a an ounce of guilt or condemnation uh, or legalism associated with it. And that was that fine needle that I was trying to walk in presenting it. And God willing, I, I, I hope, I hope that, uh, that I pulled it off. Well, I think uh, I want to stick on this just a little bit, specifically the gospel itself. And then maybe we can dig a little deeper into this idea of the kingdom. I've, I've got some questions for you on that. But when we think about the gospel message uh, I think, first of all, that's that's a fascinating take and, and one that I really agree with, that the gospel is something that does need to be reclaimed. I think many of us might feel like, well, we know what the gospel is. And yet in Galatians 1, when Paul is writing to the believers, he says that it's possible to receive a distorted gospel or a a contrary gospel or even just a different gospel. There, there are several words that he uses to, to characterize versions of the gospel that are out there. And it seems to me that in certainly in the United States, we have what I would consider to be a truncated gospel. It's just it, there are elements of it that are true, but then there are, there are large pieces that are just completely missing in the way that we're communicating the gospel. So in your book, you also talk about various gospels. And I wonder if you could explain that a little bit for our listeners today. What are the three gospels that you see being most commonly heard and proclaimed today? Yeah, well, two of them dominate. And the, the, the first one I call the gospel of legalism. Of course, people who preach that never refer to it by that name. But that's the, that's the gospel that says, um, come to Jesus as you are. Believe him as your savior, uh, receive him into your heart, uh, and it's all by grace, and he's forgiven your sins, and uh, just come to him. And then once once the individual does that, 
then the message switches and it's no longer come as you are and uh, God's mercy and grace has set you free. It doesn't matter what you've done. The message now becomes God's holy. You're not try harder. And every sermon that's preached by those who have embraced the gospel of legalism leaves Christians feeling like I'm not doing enough. I'm falling short. I've, I've got to do better in this area. God's not happy with me. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. Uh, and that continues year after year after year after year. It never changes. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> essentially the Christian is living, uh, with a hangover of guilt all the time. Um, so that's the gospel of legalism. And there, there's a lot more to it than that. And I unravel it in the book. Uh, but the other gospel, which is the reaction, the strong reaction to the gospel of legalism is what I call the gospel of libertinism. And the gospel of libertinism basically goes like this. Um, you are saved by grace, which is true, by the way. Um, God is a God who understands that you're a mere mortal. You're a sinner. You're fallen. And because you're under grace and because you're free in Christ, as Galatians says, then it really doesn't matter what you do in your personal life. And so, you know, you could live the way you want as long as you do a few things that God's really concerned about, like helping the poor and engaging in social, social activism and standing for justice. Those are the things that God's really concerned about. But, you know, how you live your personal life, that's, you know, God, you're under grace. It doesn't really matter. You see, and that's the gospel of libertinism. And usually people who imbibe that gospel have been burned from the gospel of legalism. So in other words, they fall off the other side of the horse. <laughs> um, and so the third gospel, which I'm seeking to present in this book, is the gospel of the kingdom, which Paul also calls the gospel of grace. And we have a we have a false dichotomy that that was introduced in the 19th century, um, which basically says Jesus preached the kingdom and Paul preached grace. And that is a false dichotomy, and I shred it in the book. Jesus Christ preached grace also, and he preached the kingdom. And Paul of Tarsus preached the kingdom, and he also preached grace. They had the same message. It was no different. Uh, just one was post-resurrection and the other was pre-resurrection, but they preached the same thing. And what's inter interesting is that the gospel of the kingdom, on the one hand, sets us free from the um, corrupting lust of the flesh. So it breaks, breaks us free from libertinism. You know, um, grace is a license to sin. It, it totally obliterates that. But on the other hand, it sets us free from legalism and religious duty and guilt and condemnation. And so we're free from legalism. Uh, so the gospel of the kingdom is is a liberating message that sets us free from everything except for Jesus Christ himself. Hmm. And that's why it's so powerful. That's why I call it a high-octane gospel. <laughs> yeah, I, I really like that. It seems to me that uh, a lot of times, you know, we have this this very, you know, Jesus said that, um, that narrow is the gate that leads to life and fewer those who, who enter by it. Um, 
And yet it, it seems to me that a lot of times the way we approach things is there's this broad door that we present people with the gospel. Uh, and then we try to to narrow it down once people walk through it. Is that uh, is that something that that you see happening? Have we basically separated the gospel from discipleship? And is that something that you're trying to address with this book? Yeah, that, I mean, I, I would say that's a simplified way of putting it. I'm doing a whole lot more than that. Um, being a disciple and being a convert and being a believer are all synonymous in the New Testament. Uh, in the 19th century, in the mid-19th century, the two were separated. And so what ended up happening was there were certain teachers that, and their teaching caught on big, hmm. that said that you, know, you can be a convert and that's free grace and that's easy, but a discipleship, being a disciple is optional and that's hard. Hmm. And yet the New Testament does not separate the two. Uh, and, and here's the thing about it, you know, Look, people who are in the flesh are going to do whatever they can to justify their way of life. And so if that means, you know, torturing the Bible to make it fit one's doctrine, that's what happens. And, um, you know, the fact of the matter is, if you torture the Scripture enough, it will confess to anything. Hmm. And so consequently... Um, you know, we have to look at the Scripture as a whole and not as verses taken out of context and pasted together to build a doctrine that accommodates our lifestyle or accommodates what we feel is easy. Uh, Bonhoeffer did something like this with his book called Discipleship. Later, it was, it was renamed The Cost of Discipleship. And some of the insights he had were correct. Now, this is a totally different book, and it, it covers much different ground. But, you know, related to your question, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you cannot be a convert of Jesus Christ. You cannot be a Christian, quote unquote, which was a name that the followers of Jesus didn't call themselves. It was given to them by observers in the city of Antioch. You cannot be a um, believer and not be a disciple, not be a follower of Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean we follow his teachings only. That means we follow him. We follow him. You know, he's still alive. Right. So, it, you know, there, there's, a, there's a big push today uh, in our time particularly uh, out of one particular camp that says, well, it's all about following Jesus, and that means we read what he said, and then we try to obey it. Well, no, that's not what the early Christians understood following Jesus to mean. They actually believe that he was still alive in the Spirit, and we follow the Spirit. That's why Paul says those who are led by the Spirit, those who follow the Spirit are the sons of God. He's still alive, and he will lead us in a way that completely maps to what he taught you know you right. you can't separate him from his teaching but you but on the other hand you can't divorce his teaching from him and that, that's another book uh that i've written with uh, a gentleman named leonard sweet who's a professor at several uh, seminaries and we wrote a book together called jesus manifesto and it was all about the fact that you cannot separate the teachings of jesus from jesus himself that he's still alive and he's come to indwell every believer, uh, every disciple by the Spirit, and it is the Spirit, it is the indwelling life of Christ that we follow and live by. And that was one of the big points of, of the book. But 
Um, getting back to your question, yeah, you, you cannot be a convert and not be a disciple. That doesn't mean you're perfect. That doesn't mean you're not in need of daily transformation. That doesn't mean you don't have any struggles. But it does mean that there's been a crisis situation where you have basically um, married Jesus Christ, okay, if you want to put it that way, you know. Um, and just like uh, a couple who gets married, you know, uh, the husband can't say to his wife, well, you know, you know, is it, is it okay if I, um, if I remain true to you seven days out of the week, but, uh, you know, occasionally, uh, maybe on the fifth day, I'm not, you know, um, that, that, that wouldn't fly with any woman. It wouldn't fly with any man and it doesn't fly with the Lord. So yeah, it, it definitely, we talk about what a disciple really is and how one becomes a disciple in the book. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I one of the ways I think about, you know, being a follower of Jesus is that we've we've gone from the best case scenario being that God has given us a a rule book, which is one way you can think about the law of Moses and the Old Testament that God has spoken and he's given us uh, uh, a playbook, a rule book to follow. We've gone from that to God sending his his very son to us and then giving us his spirit. So now we actually have a guide, a life guide. And, you know, if you have, if you have a life guide, Jesus himself, the one that everyone is going to one day give an account to, if you have him living in you, you really don't need that rule book anymore. At least your goal should not be to follow the rules. It should be to, to get to know this living Lord that you have and to learn how to hear his voice and follow in his footsteps. So, I really appreciate that. And, you know, something you mentioned was not necessarily segmenting off these different aspects of, of the Christian life, whether it's the gospel or conversion or discipleship. And it seems to me that the kingdom of God is another one of these, these truths that sort of gets segmented off. So what, what do you see as being some of the popular myths or maybe common misconceptions that we have today about the kingdom of God, especially among Christians? Yeah, that is a, that's a great question. And uh, I do address some of it in the book and I'll, I'll just kind of speak off the cuff here about it. There are many um, that I've come to realize and some of them I held in the past before I actually looked at what the kingdom of God is and particularly the gospel, the kingdom in the new Testament. But, um, I guess each one is represented by a certain tribe in the Christian faith. And I won't mention the tribes by name. Um, but, but I mean, I think your listeners will be able to say, oh, yeah, I was brought up in a church that taught that one. Or, uh, oh, I know this teacher and he teaches that one. And to my mind, um, each of them is a misconception of the kingdom of God. And it has led to a, a dilution uh, diluting of the gospel, uh, particularly the gospel of the kingdom. So I guess the first one would be, and this is probably um, the one that dominates right now in the Christian world, and that is that the kingdom of God is the equivalent to going to heaven. And so the kingdom then is a future prospect. It's something that is off into the distance, and we experience it, experience it when we die. And that actually, in that form, is, is false. Um, here, here's the truth. The kingdom of God in its fullness is certainly a future event and an, a future phenomenon. 
But with the resurrection of Jesus, the future has been brought into the present. And so, therefore, that's why the New Testament talks about the kingdom as being both past and present, both yesterday and today, that the kingdom can be experienced now, that it's available to people now. And yet, it's really a future event, so the future is being brought into the present. We live as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, we are learning to live in the presence of the future. And that's exactly what the New Testament teaches, and that's what Paul had on his mind constantly when he was writing to the churches. Uh, so so that, that's one uh, myth, is that it's something you know, we have to wait for when we die, we'll go there, and that's pretty much it. It doesn't really have much bearing on, on how we live today, except that we're, trying to, we're supposed to try to get as many people prepared for that future kingdom as we can. So then you know, the name of the game is evangelism. Um, right. Yeah, so that's one. Another one, though, which is sort of a reaction to that, particular misconception is that the kingdom of God is something that we build on earth and we do it through social activism. And uh, so standing for social justice and protesting and trying to get uh, certain politicians elected to pass certain laws so that the problems of the world can be fixed. And so we're the ones that build the kingdom and we do it by grabbing political power and social power. Uh, that is another misconception of what the kingdom is. Now, there's certainly, I don't want your listeners to misunderstand me. I am not at all saying that God's people are to just ignore the, the hurting, the poor, you know, those who are suffering injustice. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying the way to do that and the way that the body of Christ does that is very different than trying to sit at Caesar's table and leverage political power and engage in social activism the way the world does. Um, you know, right now we have, I mean, we have a bitter hostility between the conservative right and the progressive left. And this hostility is not just among unbelievers, it's among the Christian family. We have many Christians that are part of the conservative right, and what they're trying to do is uh, grab political power to put their guys in office so that this will be a Christian nation. Well, the progressive left does the exact same thing, only they pick different guys, okay? <laughs> and their right. issues and their causes are different, right? Uh, right? But they're both eating from the same tree. Hmm. Think back to Genesis, Genesis 3. They're eating from, they're just eating different leaves off the same exact tree, and it is not the tree of life. And so when Jesus came, he was neither part of the progressive left of his day, and he wasn't part of the conservative right of his day. The Pharisees were the conservative right of his day, and he constantly collided with them, vehemently so. And the Sadducees were part of the progressive left of his day, and he constantly gave them fits. He was something other than both. And right. so... The, the disciples of Jesus today, those who really get the gospel of the kingdom, are neither part of the conservative right nor the politi political left. They're not trying to grab political power. They do have a testimony in this world, but it is very different from what we see in the world. And the way they do it is very different. So I explore all of that in the book. If anybody is 
is still listening to this podcast and hasn't turned it off in anger, <laughs> um, they'll 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 uh, read a lot about that, and I think I think will be clear. It's helped a lot of people. I tell you, I, I've heard from readers on both who are just staunch conservatives and staunch progressives, and after they've read the book, it's given them a totally new context, a new uh, vantage point, a new perspective that never occurred to them before and it really resonated. So I, I just say that as a way of encouragement. Yeah, I would I would really agree with that. I think that this book does an an incredible job of of just putting the pieces on on the playing board in a way that makes sense and, and that I think is true to the reality that we see around us. But it off, also, you know, very clearly offers up what you might call a third way. Uh, how do we live as as citizens of of a heavenly colony that that really doesn't belong to any other uh, system here on Earth? That that we are uh, what you describe as the third race. Um, there's an amazing chapter that you have in there where you talk about when the the question was posed to Jesus about should we pay taxes to Caesar, and you talked about the uh, the likeness whose likeness is on that coin. Um, and just great. I hope people get this this book because I think they're going to be really in cha challenged, but also encouraged mm. and get some insights that maybe they haven't heard anywhere else in uh, the Christian world today. Um, you know, let's um, let's dig a little bit deeper into the, the kingdom of God itself. You make a statement in the book um, where you say that when we when we try to understand the kingdom by defining it, it's really it's really a fool's errand. You're never going to get a, a clear understanding of the kingdom if you just try to define it. What you have to do is you have to describe it. And you do a great job of that in the book where you offer just a number of, of what you might call vignettes of of the kingdom of God that help us begin to get all the uh, the multifaceted dimensions of the kingdom. So can you talk a little bit more about that? What's the difference between just trying to define the kingdom and what's the danger of, of limiting our understanding to a definition versus really having it described? Well, first of all, um, I'm taking my cue there from Jesus and Paul. Uh, Jesus incessantly spoke on the kingdom of God. In fact, if you count, and I do it in the book, if you count the number of times he, he used the phrase, the kingdom, um, without overlap and without repetition, it comes out to be almost 90 times in the gospel. And um, so it was pervasive in his ministry, but he never defined it ever. What he did, though, is he illustrated it constantly. He said uh, the kingdom of God is like or the kingdom of God is similar to or um, how shall I compare the kingdom of God? Well, it's kind of like this. <laughs> and and uh, excuse me, Paul did the same thing. And but then Paul went a step further, and he told us what the kingdom of God was not. You know, uh, so the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking, uh, right. etc. And so we find out that the way they spoke about the kingdom was on the one hand they they wouldn't define it. On the other hand, they illustrated it. And so that's what I do in the book as well, giving contemporary illustrations of what the kingdom is. Uh, one of them comes from my own state, Florida, the Magic Kingdom. I talk about 
how the Magic Kingdom is an illustration of entering into the kingdom of God, uh, a phrase taken from, uh, excuse me, Acts chapter 14. So it has to be illustrated. Once you define it, you, you drain it from its power, you limit it, you dilute it. Uh, once you define it, you basically have, have removed its robustness because what ends up happening is that people take that definition, which is too limited to contain the dynamic, titanic, earth-shaking power and glory and majesty of the kingdom in, in an Aristotelian linear sentence. And so it ends up hurting the whole message. Hmm. Uh, the other problem with it or the other danger is that um, when you define it, uh, and this is particularly true for Westerners, because we are in effect the sons and daughters of Aristotle, we have been trained to believe that memorizing a definition is the equivalent of experiencing what we're defining. Hmm. And so the idea being, okay, I know what the kingdom is. Here's the definition. Therefore, subconsciously, I've experienced it. I've got it. Let's move on to something else. And that's exactly what happens with Westerners. So um, you cannot define it without, you know, um, damaging the reality. Uh, you cannot do justice by defining it. I do actually have a one sentence um, description of it, but that's after, you know, and, and before illustrating it over and over again in different ways. <laughs> right. It actually makes sense, you know? Um, and, uh, but yeah, that, that would be the answer to their question from my perspective. Uh, it, but it, I will tell you this, that everyone so far who's written me, read the book says, I'm finally clear on what the kingdom of God is and, and the gospel of the kingdom, which is a huge humbling compliment. It's one of those things where I guess it depends on what what circles that that you move around in, but you know the kingdom of God is it's almost something that uh, I know just in my own experience it's not something you hear talked about much at all. Uh, certainly not to the extent that you see Jesus talking about it in the Gospels or or even the the New Testament writers and John in the Book of Revelation. It doesn't even necessarily get referenced. I'm not sure we know where it fits for us as modern day, uh, predominantly Gentile believers. Um, can can you say? Can you say how do you see the the kingdom of God and the church or ecclesia? How do you see these two things connected? How do they fit together? Well, that's an excellent question because. Unfortunately, most of the people who've taught on the kingdom of God over the last 50 years have made this dramatic separation from church and kingdom. Um, in other words, they've said that the kingdom is something totally separate from the church and vice versa. Well, here, here, here's the problem. That statement is true, and it's also false. It's true <laughs> if you... If you define church as a Sunday morning service, or you define church as a denomination, or you define church as a building, or you define church as all the Christians in the world, uh, then you're right. The church is not the kingdom, and the kingdom is not the church. Those two things are completely separate. But if you define 
the word church as it appears in the English New Testament um, as ekklesia, which is the Greek term for it. And ekklesia meant a local body of believers that lived in face-to-face community and had a shared life together and took care of each other and loved one another and knew each other uh, in the sense that they saw themselves as family despite racial division, despite economic division, despite sexual division, you know, meaning men, men and women included. If you see it as that living, breathing, close-knit, extended family, uh, all of whom were living by the life of Jesus Christ, then, uh, brother and sister listening, that was the kingdom of God on this planet. Because, and the New Testament is very clear about this, in the book of Revelation, he made us a kingdom. <laughs> That's saying that the people of God were the king. See, a kingdom refers to the king, the king's domain, and the people who are ruled by the king. That's what a kingdom is. Right. It includes the people who are ruled by the king. So in the first century, if I was living, say, in, oh, the region of Galatia in, say, the year 49, well, say 50 A.D., and I wanted to find the kingdom of God, where I would go is I would go to the city of Antioch of Pisidia, or I would go to the city of Lystra, or I would go to um, the town of Derby, or I would go to the city of Iconium, and I would see a group of believers in all four towns, all four cities, that were living a shared life together, who were living by the life of Jesus Christ, and that was the kingdom of God in those four cities. You see? Mm. Was the presence of the future uh, right there before my eyes. And, you know, in the Old Testament, we have the picture of this, which is repeated in the book of Peter, but in Exodus, God says to Israel, I will make you a kingdom of priests. In other words, I will make you a royal priesthood. I will make you a kingdom. I use that term, a kingdom of priests, those who live in my presence. And then Peter picks this up and he speaks to the body of Christ and he says, he has made you a holy nation. He's made you a royal uh, priesthood. He's made you a kingdom. Uh, mm-hmm. And that those are the words of Peter. So, so you cannot separate the ecclesia from the kingdom of God, just like you cannot separate Jesus Christ from the kingdom of God. If you wanted to see the kingdom mm-hmm. of God in, say, 32 AD, you just have to look for Jesus, because wherever Jesus is, <laughs> there's the kingdom. Well, then Jesus right. ascends. He's, he ascends. Just think about the logic here. He is, this is the biblical logic. He ascends into heaven, and what does he do? He descends in the spirit, and now he gives his life. He breathes his own indwelling life into his followers, and now they become a corporate expression of Christ. They are Christ on the earth. Uh, the New Testament makes this clear over and over again. So that's the kingdom of God. Wherever you won't find these people living together, expressing Christ together, there's the kingdom. Just like when Jesus was here as an individual before he rose again from the dead, if you wanted to see the kingdom, you found Jesus. So after he yeah. rose again from the dead, if you wanted to see the kingdom, you see this people who are having a shared life together, who are living by Christ, manifesting Christ, expressing Christ, there's the kingdom. And that has been lost to us uh, because this gets yeah. into another another cutting edge of the kingdom, Andrew, and that is the kingdom of God is an alternative civilization in the midst 
of fallen human civilization. It lives completely different. It has different values, different customs, uh, it, it, a different way of life. Uh, and it shows us what it means uh, for God to be king over a people. And that's what the ecclesia is. That's very different from going to church on Sunday morning where most people don't even know one another. Right. They spend those hours worshiping. They leave, they go home. And what do they do? They live their own individual Christian life. Very different from the first century ecclesia. Well, this uh, this really leads into a couple of other questions that, that I want to, to ask and get your thoughts on. One of them, going back to legalism, you know, it's, um, I guess you could say in its best case scenario, it's, it's driven by a desire to please God. Um, and so we're efforting to, to keep rules or to live up to a certain standard in our own strength. Um, one thing that you write about extensively in this book, Insurgents, is our need to get a compelling vision of Jesus. Um, and one thing I appreciated or that I drew from, from that from that part of the book was that this compelling vision of Jesus is going to do at least two things for us. First, it's it's going to bring focus uh, to our lives as his people, uh, but also it's going to serve as the fuel for our devotion. So can you elaborate on that and maybe talk about what happens if our vision of Jesus is clouded or or distorted and how can we get clarity? Yeah, absolutely. Well, here, here's the thing. Let's think about the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples. These were the original band of, of people who followed the Lord. Now, also, too, there's a group of women that were just as uh, much uh, a, a, a group of dis- disciples of Jesus as were the men. And Luke has a term for them, a shorthand term. He called them the women. It was about five to eight women who followed Jesus wherever he went. And they were just as faithful. Actually, they were more faithful than the 12, <laughs> because when Jesus had his darkest hour, the 12 checked out, but the women stayed and watched him die and even were caring for him um, after he was dead. You know, they were the ones that went to the burial. And um, so so we have this, let's just say, uh, to sum it up, 20 people who were following Jesus. Here's the thing. They left everything to follow him. They left their businesses. They left their homes. They left everything to follow this prophet wherever he went. Now, that's major sacrifice. That would be like you you know, leaving our, selling our house, getting rid of our business, handing it off to family or selling it, and then just following some guy all around the world. That's exactly what it was in the first century. They abandoned everything. Well, what was it that compelled them to do that? Was it because they felt guilty? Was it because they felt condemned? Was it because they wanted to make God happy? No, they saw the glory of Jesus Christ and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. They were riveted by who this person was. They were so arrested, they got a compelling vision of who he was that it drew ultimate sacrifice from them. And so, you know, how can you love someone if you haven't really seen how lovable they are? And here, you know, I I think 
a lot of times what preachers do to try to get people to, are you there? Yeah, I got you. My lost you. Okay. A, a lot of times what preachers do to, um, to try to get God's people in line, so to speak, and, you know, provoke them to obey is they put fear and guilt on them. And that never lasts very long. It eventually wears out. And it's not, it, it's a horrible motivator to get somebody to, to, to love the Lord. I mean, it may get you to line up, but it's not going to get you to love him. What needs to happen is for people to have an earth-shaking vision of Christ. And I'm not talking about a, you know, a vision that you see uh, with your eyes. I'm talking about something that breaks into your heart where you have um, an infusion of who he is, you know, a, a spiritual awakening. And you see how incredibly glorious he is. You see how beautiful he is, how majestic, how awesome. Um, and it goes way beyond that. Hey, look, Jesus died for your sins. Now you need to give him your life. You know, um, you know, right. that, that can that really doesn't touch the heart like unveiling him in his glory. And that's what I try to do in the first part of the book is it, it's it's unveiling the king's beauty, um, because once we can see who he is and it strikes at our hearts, then abandoning to him is not a chore. It it's comes out of love, comes out of devotion. It's a response to the beauty and majesty and glory and incredible, irresistible, captured uh, heart that when it sees Christ. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that, and I think it's it's one of the. I see it as one of the great challenges uh, of our time, and just in my own life is is to constantly fix my eyes on Jesus. And that's what is going to enable me to lay aside the sin and all the thing, things that so easily entangle me that the solution is to fix your eyes on Jesus. And one thing that I hope our listeners will will do is pick up a copy of the book because you do a great job of, of describing that. Like you said, you spend the first part of the book trying to unveil Jesus in those ways, but you also give some some practical exercises at the end of each chapter that your readers can can go through on their own to to sharpen their vision of Jesus and to really be captured by all that he is and all that he's doing and all that he's going to do, because that really will, I think, bring that focus and and provide that fuel for an ongoing life of devotion to him as opposed to just trying to gin it up on our own or try to respond to what other people are, are placing on us. So I love that. I think it's one of the most challenging aspects of walking by faith, though, is is to do that, to fix our eyes on Jesus and uh, to allow that to be the fuel. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is where the ecclesia comes in, that when you are, um, if a person is part of a body of believers that's in one another's lives constantly, I don't mean church on Sunday morning and Wednesday night, I mean constantly right. having a shared life together, we're constantly reminding one another of the Lord's grace and showing one another his glory. And so mm-hmm. it's a, you're, you're immersed in this, you know, continuous growing vision of the Lord and knowing him and and seeing him for who he is and learning him from one another. And that's exactly what the body of Christ is to do. You know, it's the, the word ecclesia means assembly. And if, when you think of assembling and something together, you have the different parts of the body giving their portion of Jesus. 
And at the, when you step back from it, he is assembled. He is kind of unveiled in his fullness. And uh, we can't do that as individuals. And, and it doesn't happen by listening to sermons either. You know, I mean, we can get a little bit of that if the sermon is extraordinary. But, you know, nothing can replace the ecclesia. And, and I do give some very practical um, exercises and suggestions on creating what I call a kingdom cell. Um, this is not a cell group. It's not a cell church. It, the analogy is the the sleeper cells and um, the radical um, uh, terrorist organizations. They have these things called sleeper cells. And so I use that language because I believe the true radicalization is coming to Jesus Christ. Um, that's what it was in the first century, and that's what it is today when the gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed. But um, these are small groups of two, three, four, and more who are getting together regularly to talk about the kingdom and the gospel of the kingdom and the implications and learning how to care for each other and learning how to know the Lord together. And uh, and this is happening. In fact, I'm going to write about it on my blog uh, this coming Thursday. Um, testimonials from people who are forming these kingdom cells, you know, all over the world. And uh, it's, Really encouraging. So, you know, that's one of the things that the book is is seemingly producing is these these kingdom outposts, if you please, uh, of people, small groups of people who are living kingdom life together, learning how to live it together. Yeah, I, I love it, man. Um, and, and I really I really do hope people not only pick up the book, but um, if they're not already, that they begin to follow some of your work, particularly your work there on the blog. I was blown away. I mean, you have the exercises at the end of each chapter, but then there are just um, a wealth of resources that you have at your at your website. That is, it is basically a a parallel for the book, where people can go audio messages, um, articles that you've written that that further dive into different topics. You, you've got one on how to break an addiction, mm -hmm. which I think so many people, uh, so many of us would benefit from. It's not in the book, but you talk about it some, and then you refer people to an additional resource. It's just, uh, it's, it's an amazing, um, work that you're doing, not just with the book, but, um, but just across, uh, the platform. So I know we're running short on time here. So as, uh, as we kind of wrap it up, that's probably a, a good question to ask is, um, what are your prayers and hopes for this book and, and where do you see this thing going? How can people be a part of it? You know, I take it very seriously. I, I think that the Lord is definitely doing something in terms of reclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The impact it's having on readers is is beyond what I had expected or even foreseen. And I, I take it seriously in the sense that um, I have written supplementary articles that you mentioned put on uh, the website that's mentioned in the book. So when, when readers are going through the book, it you know, there might be a little note that says, you know, go to the website and uh, read, you know, this hmm. this chapter, whether it's addictions or political elections or whatever it may be, uh, because we couldn't we couldn't fit it all into the book. The publisher had hmm. to stop it where it was, um, you know, the page count. And so we just put them on a supplementary website, which, as you say, has audios and so forth. There's even a master class that goes along with it. But my hope is that 
I, I just got to tell you, I, I wish this book landed in my hands when I was a young believer. Um, in fact, I wish it landed in my hands 20 years ago, you know, and, and I wasn't a young believer 20 years ago. I was a seasoned believer somewhat. And I just wish that every Christian who is hungry for the Lord, who wants all that he has, who wants to go further in their spiritual life, will read the book. It's very easy yeah, to read. The chapters are one to two pages long. I, I did that deliberately so people can, you know, read it quickly. And then um, just join the insurgents, be part of what, what God is doing. And, and when they read the book, they'll understand what that means. Get plugged into uh, the blog and the website. And, uh, you know, I'm writing every Thursday to, to those who've joined the insurgents. We got some live events planned for 2019 and God willing in the future. And uh, the people will connect with one another who are on the same journey, who are really interested in responding to the gospel of the kingdom and, and living that journey out uh, together to find others of like mind and like heart. So that's really my heart and intention. Now, people want to just check out some samples of the book and look at different uh, online stores that have it on discount. They can just go to insurgents.org one word insurgents.org and there's interviews on that site there's reviews there's samples there's endorsements uh and they can get a feel for it and you know like i say um get the book on discount if they want to order it online amazon has it etc read some of the reviews <coughs> excuse me and so yeah that was my hope and that's my prayer and and i just want to see the insurgents increase and grow in our time well, our, our listeners know that Into the Harvest is all about taking the message and mission of Jesus out of the building and into the everyday of life, which is where the Lord always intended us to to be his people and to live as his people. And I couldn't recommend your book, Insurgents, uh, any higher because I think it's it's on the cutting edge of of what God is doing in our world today, uh, which is stirring his people to uh, to take these steps and it's just a, an amazing resource that you have there so we'll put uh, we'll put some links in the show notes of this episode uh, to the book there on Amazon we'll also put a link into your blog frankviola.org and uh, I would definitely encourage people to to connect with what you're doing there and you can actually get lost in uh, Frank's website he's got so many uh, so many resources there. But uh, Frank, I really appreciate you joining us uh, today, and hopefully we'll get a chance to do it again at some point in the future. Thanks so much, Andrew. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the podcast. You can help us reach more people by going to iTunes, subscribing, and leaving a review. And if you like what we're doing here, tell a friend about us. In an age of social media, word of mouth is still the best way to spread the message.